I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up in the paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being, becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak then I am strong. Paul has been urging the Corinthian church throughout the second letter to, to go back to the foundations of their faith, to put into practice the things that he taught them when he was with them. They had heard the gospel, they had been changed by it, and they've started drifting. They've begun wandering from, from those basic teachings, and they've fallen under the influence of some bad guys who come in and infiltrated the church, and now there's division, there's tension, there are finger pointers and accusations floating all over the place. A lot of them are, are aimed at Paul, but people are angry. Now, not all of them are angry, not the whole church is upset, but there are enough people in there that it's become a significant enough problem that Paul feels he has to address it. So, uh, in the letter, Paul has blessed them, He's encouraged them. He's reminded them of who he is, not necessarily in an arrogant way, but to just say, hey, uh, you know, I'm the guy who brought you the gospel. You remember uh, when, when you first heard it, you remember the transformation you've gone through. You, you know the transformation I've gone through. My reputation was anything but as a Christian, and now I'm, I'm preaching the gospel. You've been transformed. I've been transformed. He reminds them of who he is. He reminds them of who they are, the spirits in him, the spirits in them. Paul is depending on the spirit of Christ in them and in him to resolve all this tension and for them to work it out in a godly manner. So he reminds them where they've came from. And in chapter 11, uh, uh, Paul begins to turn his attention on these accusers. And 11 and 12 and, uh, are what are known as the fool's speech uh, because Paul begins this boasting, and I put that in quotation marks because Paul's really trying to parody the boasting that these, these problem uh, people have brought in and, and point towards Jesus Christ instead of himself. It, it, Paul sees the problem as them being self-centered, and he wants to turn their focus back on Jesus Christ. So, so when Paul begins his boasting 
in quotation marks, he boasts of his weaknesses. He boasts of his weaknesses. It's counterintuitive to what we feel boasting should be. So Paul starts talking about how weak he is. And then in these first 10 verses, chapter 12, he kind of lowers the boom on these accusers. And uh, he does it in a typically Pauline way. But uh, while he does this, he cements his position as an apostle, not just by exercising his authority, not just by telling them that he's an apostle, uh, but by sharing how he became an apostle, sharing what makes him an apostle, and by comparing his qualifications to the qualifications of his accusers, and not, not just in comparing the qualifications, but in comparing how he puts his qualifications out there. And he does it with some surprising results. So our sermon for today is called Content. This is what the whole series is about. Uh, and and uh, this is part 17 of our series. There will be 20 parts altogether. Um, but let me start out asking you this question. Uh, Pastor Scott brought it up a little bit earlier. Are, are you content? Are you happy? Can you approach life with joy? If, if you're not content, if you're not happy... Let me ask you this. What do you need? What do you need to be happy this morning? Paul's going to hit this square between the eyes in these 10 verses. So keep that in the back of your mind. What do you need to be happy? Now, Paul's content, and you know, we, we, we've been talking about this for a while, but Paul's content, it, and things are not really going all that well for Paul, but he's content, and he's going to make the case for his contentment in this passage here by describing the nature of three profound experiences he's had. Now, uh, the first experience is going to be this vision. We're going to look at the nature of the vision that he has, his revelation. That's in verses 1 through 4. Uh, the second experience is, is his boast, the nature of his boast. Now, that'll show up in verses 5 through 9a. And the third experience is going to be the, the nature of his weakness. Where does he get this weakness from? That'll be 9b and 10. So let's look at the nature of Paul's first experience, this vision. And so he says, I must go on boasting. He's not quite done, uh, though there's nothing to be gained by it. Now, that's a little bit of a swipe at his accusers. There's really nothing to be gained by boasting, but I'm going to continue anyway. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. Uh, and I know this man was caught up in the paradise. He kind of repetition here. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, keep in mind, this flows with chapter 11. And where we were at the end of chapter 11 is Paul had done this boasting, and then he humbled himself. Uh, he related the, the tale in which he was in Philippi, and they had to lower him down out of a window, the wall of the city, so he could escape arrest. Now, Paul has chosen his phrasing very carefully here. Uh, so he, he's trying to get away from being arrested, and, and what he describes is he has been, watch this, let down by other men. So he wants them to see this, this, uh, this image of Paul being let down by men. Uh, because as soon as he's done with that, he turns around and says, and then I was lifted up by God. 
So he's not looking for the affirmation of men. We've talked about that in, in chapter 11. He's looking for the affirmation of God, and he wants to kind of, that to, to kind of sink in with, the, with the, the Corinthians so that they understand what he's talking about. So he's raised up by God and by a revelation. Uh, so Paul's very deliberate in his contrast here. Um, but as soon as we hear revelation, we, we want to know what it is, don't we? What, what, did, what is this revelation? What is this vision he's had? The, the Bible's filled with fantastic visions. We have Ezekiel's vision of the wheel within the wheel. We have Isaiah's vision of the burning coal. And, and so we want to know what it is. Uh, but Paul is trying to temper things here. So uh, he wants them to understand exactly what's going on so that they can hear exactly what he wants to say. So he starts out with this, this after 14 years. Now, that's more significant than its look. It's not, it's not just, hey, this happened to me 14 years ago. He, he, there's a message in there. Because 14 years prior to this moment was before he met the Corinthians. It was before he came to Corinth the first time. And what he's really saying is that, that, that this life-changing event that we'll re read more about in verse 7 and 8 predates his first visit to Corinth. And although he was with them, has been with them a number of times, he's written them a number of letters, he's never mentioned the vision before. So what he wants them to understand is that Paul never based the original sharing of the gospel on some experience that he had. He didn't come in and say, here's my qualifications. I've had this vision. It was awesome. Now you need to listen to me. He didn't share the gospel with them based on his qualifications or his experiences. He wanted them to, share, to hear the gospel and absorb the word of God and nothing more than that. Nothing of Paul, all of Jesus Christ. So he wanted to let the word of God speak for itself. And so uh, apparently these accusers have claimed some sort of prophetic word and, and you know, maybe they've come to the church and said, you know, I've got a word from the Lord for you today. Or maybe they've come to the church and said, I had a vision. I had a dream. Or maybe they've come to the church and said, you know, I have this power because God speaks through me. Paul's saying, that's not the way I did it. If you remember, I let the word of God speak for itself. So Paul says he was caught up. And I think the NIV says he was snatched up. Now, very careful phrasing again. Because Paul wants them to understand that he didn't do this. This is something that God did. It was God's initiative. Paul didn't initiate it. There was no meditation. Uh, there was no special process that he went through. Uh, he can't duplicate it. There's no, no method that he followed. And he doesn't even really know what happened. What, was I there in the body? Was, was it in his spirit? I don't know. God knows. He, it's not an out-of-body experience. He didn't say, I raised up, and I looked down, and there was Paul down there, and I, I could see him. So this is not typical of the way that we've become accustomed to hear about these things. So he's raised up to the third heaven. Well, what is that? The third heaven. There's all sorts of doctrine and theology based on that. The word here is udenos. Uh, it's Greek. It could be singular. It could be plural. It depends on the context. It means heavens. Uh, in verse 3, he, he says, I was raised up into paradise. And uh, that this is uh, paradisos. And, and it, it's, it's significant. He's not talking about two different places. He's talking about the same place. And one he calls it heaven. And the, the other one he calls it a garden. That's paradisos is 
is a garden. Well, this is significant uh, because he's trying to describe where he went and in terms that the Jews could understand. And so let, let me talk to you about the Jewish notion of heaven so we can have some clarity on this. There's a handout in your bullet and you can take a look. And there, there were a number, there were a variety of, of levels of heaven that the Jews saw. Some of them saw three levels. Some of them saw seven, some nine. There were even a very small minority who thought there might be 97 levels of heaven. But the generally accepted consensus was that there were three. And you had the earth, and above that you had the sky, and, then, uh, and that was called the firmament. Below the earth were the foundations of the earth. Uh, below the earth was Sheol. Uh, but you had the sky, which was part of the firmament, and then you had the water above the firmament, and then you had the heaven of heavens. And so what Paul wants us to know is that he had gone to the third heaven. And this is the, it, regardless of, of what, uh, what version of the heavens that you're looking at, the Jews, Paul's trying to say, I've gone to the highest heaven. I've gone as far as I can. I've gotten as close to God as I can get. That's why he uses the word garden. To the Jews, it would take them back to the garden when Adam walked with God. So, Paul's not trying to give us a theology on levels of heaven here. He's trying to talk about being in the uppermost heaven. He's trying to talk about being as close to God as you can get. So we've got to be careful not to develop a whole set of doctrines on this. So, uh, and as, as he talks about this third heaven, just about the time you think that he's going to go into what happened there, what's he say? I can't talk about it. Now, we, we don't know if he's incapable of describing it or if he's, just, or he's not allowed to talk about it. But whatever it is, Paul's not going to go into details on the vision. He's not going to say, uh, I, I saw this and I saw that and, and I talked to Moses and I talked to Abraham and I saw the face of God. He just said, he's so inspired about this, it's been so emotionally moving that he's not going to share it with him. It suffices to him that... that they know that he drew close to God. So the nature of Paul's vision is not about what he saw. It's about the hand of God. It's about because of who God is. He, it, it's not, you know, it's not I got taken up because of who I am, because I'm a special apostle. I've done this and I've done that. It's that God took him up. And the nature of the vision is focused on God, not on Paul. And it's not even focused on what happened when he got there. It's just focused on Paul's being moved by God and drawn closer to him. So that's the nature of, of this revelation. Let's look at the second experience, the nature of his boast in verses 5 through 9a. In verses 5 and 6, Paul says that he'll boast only of his weaknesses. You know, we talked about that. It's counterintuitive. He draws a contrast between him and his accusers, though. They boast of strength. They boast of personal revelations. They boast of, of power and position. And, and, you know, they're constantly comparing themselves to Paul and coming out favorably. So Paul... Uh, Paul's going to boast, but he boasts of his weaknesses. Now, we've seen that, but now he goes a step further. Check this out in verse 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. 
Did you catch that? Paul didn't go to heaven and come back with prosperity. Paul didn't go to heaven and come back with happiness. He didn't go to heaven and come back and sign a book deal to talk about his, his experience. He didn't go to heaven and go on the talk show circuit. Paul went to heaven. You know, you would think that if God took somebody up into heaven, they'd come back with a blessing. Wouldn't you? I've been in the presence of God. Look what I got. What did Paul get? A thorn. He got a thorn. It's Paul. What is this thorn? Well, you know, the first thing we have to look at is how did he get it? And yeah, there's a phrase that doesn't translate real well here. Uh, it, it was given. And it, it, it's, it's an inference that it came from God. That God gave him the throne. He was close to God. So the thorn in the flesh, comma, a messenger of Satan. They're not two different things. They're both referring to the same thing. And whatever this thorn is, it harasses Paul. It, it aggravates him. It makes its presence known all the time. It doesn't go away. Paul has to live with the, the frustration and aggravation of this thorn. However it's poking him, whether it be physical or, or spiritual, the thorn's not going away. It's just always there. So there are two interpretations of what this thorn was. There's physical interpretation and a relational interpretation. We don't really know, but it's kind of interesting to, to look at this, how scholarship has handled this over, thorn over the last two, uh, two centuries, 2,000 years, excuse me. Uh, a lot of people think it was a bodily ailment. Um, malaria was very common back then. Paul may have had malaria and couldn't get rid of it. Uh, some think it might be an inflammatory eye condition that he had, and that's why he didn't see real well. Some think perhaps he had epilepsy. Others think he had a speech impediment, and, and he couldn't correct it. That's why he keeps on talking about not being a great orator. Some people think that the physical part of the ailment might have been mental, uh, that he, he had uh, lustful temptations all the time that he struggled with. Some people think perhaps it was fits of despair. Others think that maybe Paul was angry. We see Paul's temper from time to time. He's arguing with Barnabas, Peter, Mark. He's just arguing with everybody around him at, at other times. Some, some folks think that perhaps Paul had a heavy conscience because of the things he did prior to getting saved. So it could have been physical. It could have been relational, what they call relational. And there's only one example, which is Paul's life. Paul just, everywhere he went, people were mad at him. They're chasing him out of cities. They're stoning him. They're putting him in prison. They're beating him up. All these terrible things are happening. So he's got opponents everywhere he goes. We just don't know. And I just think that that's fantastic. Uh, I, I, think, I, I think there's so much wisdom that when the Holy Spirit was inspiring Paul to write this down, that he didn't give him a lot of details. He, he, he probably said, Paul, don't tell him what the thorn is. And I think that that's great because whatever Paul's thorn was, you and I could look at it and go, I don't have that problem. I don't struggle with that. And what Paul wants to say is, you know, when you got a thorn, here's how you deal with it. Whatever your thorn is, here's how to deal with it. And, and Paul shows us how to deal with it. Uh, he, he prays. 
He prays. Now, I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer, amen? We've got something that's bothering us. We want to pray. And this is not, this is Paul. This is Paul praying. Theologian of theologians writes half of the New Testament. Uh, I, I mean, it, you know, Jew of Jews, awesome transformation, Damascus Road, scales falling off his eyes. You know, later on we find out that there are signs and wonders that accompany him there. This is Paul. Paul's going to pray, and he prays, and what do we think is going to happen? Well, you know, if I didn't know the rest of the story, I'd go, oh, the thorn's going to be removed, you know, and the angel's going to come down and go, don't worry, Paul, I got it. I'll, I'll pull that thorn out, okay? But look what happens. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, he said, no. He said, no. Well, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But the answer, the answer was no. And, and how did Paul know it was No. The thorn didn't leave. Whatever happened to us? We ever pray and not get an answer? We ever pray with an expectation of how God is going to move in our lives and end up disappointed because He doesn't? We ever pray and not get the answer we're looking for, so we keep on praying? Do we ever take God's silence to mean that maybe he's busy and not paying attention to me and I just got to pray louder or longer or harder? Do we ever believe that God's silence is his answer to prayer? Now, there's nothing wrong with praying longer. We're told to pray and pray and pray. Here's where we run into problems if we're not careful. Because we can pray and get frustrated with not getting the answer we're looking for. We can get impatient. I mean, we just heard a couple weeks ago about Abram and Sarai. Ten years, no baby, we need to do something. God obviously wants us to do something. And it just turns out to be a mess. So it's okay to keep praying. It's okay to stay before the Lord. It's not okay to get impatient. It's not okay to get frustrated with not hearing an answer. Sometimes the answer is no. Why is the answer no? Well, because grace is sufficient. Alkeo. It means the grace is enough to satisfy. The grace is enough to complete. The grace is enough to bring contentment. And there's kind of a question that hangs there. Was Paul satisfied with God's grace? Was he satisfied with the transformation he had gone through? Was he satisfied with being God's messenger? Was he satisfied with this revelation he had with God? Was that enough for him or did he need more? See, the whole letter has been hurtling towards this statement right here. The whole Corinthian church is hurtling towards this statement. They're unhappy. They're discontent. They're expecting something else. Is God's grace enough for them? Paul's life is hurtling towards this. Maybe ours is too. 
Is God's grace enough or do we need more? Well, you know, if I want to think about this in my flesh, why should it be enough? Doesn't God want me to live a victorious life? Does he want me to have good things? Why shouldn't I have those other things? So Paul doesn't leave us hanging. God doesn't leave Paul hanging. He doesn't just say, my grace should be enough for you. He tells him why. It says right there that when you're weak, I'm strong. He says, my strength is perfected in your weakness. Now, perfected, teleos. It's complete. It's fulfilled. It's as good as it's going to get. In Paul's weakness, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made complete in Paul's weakness. You see, we want to live the victorious life. We want to live in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Then we have to be weak. That's counterintuitive too, isn't it? But we need to see what's happening here. What God is saying is if, if, if we're strong, if we're capable, if we're getting things done, if we're busying up our lives and accomplishing this and accomplishing that, God doesn't get any credit for that. People, look what he did. Look what he did. Wow, yeah, let's get him. He can do that. Let's get her. She can do all this over here. Okay? God is saying all creation, the Bible, is not about you. It's not about what you accomplish. It's not about how you call attention to yourself. The Bible is about me, God says. It's about my plan of redemption. It's about my capability to transform. It's about my capability to get things done. And when you are weak and I accomplish things in your life, then the glory will come to God and we'll get all caught up in God bringing glory to himself. The nature of Paul's boast is in his weakness, which puts the power of Christ on display in everything Paul does. Now that takes us to uh, Paul's third experience, the nature of his weakness. So Paul says, Paul gets it. He hears that and he goes, you know what? I get it. Everything clicks. And it, all of the puzzle pieces fall into place. He said, Paul says, if my weakness shows Christ's strength, then bring it on. Bring on my weakness. Bring on insults. Bring on hardships. Bring on persecutions. Bring on calamities. Paul says, I won't fight them. I won't struggle with them anymore. I won't campaign against them. I won't complain about them. I won't worry over them. I won't get frustrated with them. I won't get depressed and angry over them. I won't do all I can to get out of them. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to embrace them. Because I want all the power Christ has, I'm going to have to be as weak as I possibly can. I'll embrace them, and I will thank God for them, and I will give God the glory for everything that happens in my life. As a matter of fact, in verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content. Look what he's content with. I'm content in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Paul taps into something we all need here. He's content. Eudicale. And you know what that means? It means, it, it doesn't mean that Paul just tolerates him. It doesn't mean that Paul puts up with these things. I can get through this. I don't like it. I can put up with it. It means that Paul takes pleasure in them. It means that Paul thinks they're good. It means that Paul embraces the promise that everything that happens to us will be for our good and for his glory. He embraces it with all that he has. He takes pleasure in them. So, the nature of Paul's weakness reveals the strength of Christ. And that means that, that, means that you know, Paul's not saying this is easy. You know, he's not trying to put a, a smiley face on the bad things that happen to us. He's not saying just grin and bear it. Paul knows this is a struggle. He knows how hard this is. I mean, we don't have to look any further than Romans chapter 7. He said, you know, I'm, I'm in this constant tension between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, my spirit wants to do good, but my flesh keeps on deceiving me. This is hard. This is a battle. And it goes on and on. And Paul, so Paul's not saying just, just do this and be happy. He's saying, I know it's a struggle, but the rewards are great. And the more you struggle with this, and the more you realize the truth of what we're saying, the more the strength of Christ and the power and presence of the Spirit will rise up in you. The payoff is, when I am weak, then I am strong. So there's, there's Paul's three experiences. And they all have one thing in common. His, the nature of his vision is God-centered. The nature of his boasting is God-centered. And the nature of his weaknesses are God-centered as well. They all point towards God. They all point towards Christ. Paul is striving to make his life God-centered. He's striving to make his life a testimony to the gospel that he preaches. He's striving to keep that gospel pure. And he is content. He's satisfied. And what we find out is that the thing that brings contentment is not being self-centered. It's being God-centered. It's being focused on Christ. So the question of the day is, are you content? Are you happy? Many of you are. Fantastic. It's a blessing. May the peace of the Lord continue to be with you. If you're not, what is it that you need more than God's grace? At what point do you turn to God and say, you know what? The sacrifice of your only son was not enough. I need this over here. I've tried that route. You end up chasing that over there. It's a never-ending race. Paul says, stop chasing. Stop struggling with that. Surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him be your strength. Because when I am weak, he is strong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the truth of your word. We pray, Father, that your strength would rise up in us, Father, that we might humble ourselves before you, giving you the glory for all that we do. We thank you for this beautiful word from Paul and this beautiful testimony that his power is not his, his authority is not his, but yours in Jesus' name.